Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to episode 20 in season two of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, a podcast we're calling Solving the Associate Problem, Recruiting, Onboarding, and Development. This is gonna be the first in a series of tackling the problem of associates, partners, and everything else along the way. So I know it's gonna be a note-taking episode for you. Get your pad and pen ready for another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. We're off and running. Once again, thanks everyone for joining me on the show today. This is a show that I have been looking forward to recording. And it's uh, like I teased in the introduction, this is going to be the first in a series, um, a, a mini series on the podcast about associates, equity, partnerships, recruiting, all kinds of that stuff. And it is a, it's always a hot topic, but I feel like it's come back into the fore with some of the things that have been going on in, in the industry at, at a larger level over the last, I don't know, six or eight months or something like that. I, I feel like probably two out of every three calls I, I get from uh, prospective clients have something to do with associates and creating partnership uh, opportunities for them. And it is something that uh, if it's not on your radar, it's it's not a matter of if, but when. So since this is going to be the first um, episode of several that, that tries to crack this nut, uh, provide some greater education for you, I'm going to take this one from a little bit of a trend standpoint and from a higher level overview of just trying to shift your mindset a little bit. And then we're going to talk more tactics and details. And I think I'm even going to have some video to, to share with y'all that we'll link to in the show notes and things like that in some upcoming episodes. So let me let me start kind of and take it from the top. And I don't know how many of you follow the um, ADA's uh, Health Policy Institute, HPI, um, we do. Uh, they do provide really good information. The ADA is made up of a, a lot of traditional solo type practices. So, so a lot of their work does not necessarily focus on groups. That's understandable. That being said, a lot of the trends they do follow um, weave their way into or are impacted by group practices. So I think it's important to kind of keep a finger on the pulse of what um, the the ADA and their economists are are studying um, what they're sharing with the marketplace and see if we can can figure out uh, where the trends are heading and skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is right now, as Wayne Gretzky would say. So there are a handful of trends here that we want to think about. First and foremost um, is the number of dentists uh, entering and exiting the profession, uh, and and we think about that from 
a, a number per capita. So the ADA is projecting that for the next uh, you know, three or four years, the number of dentists uh, entering the workforce is going to equal the number of dentists exiting the workforce. We're going to tread water through about 2025. Um, and per every 100,000 of the population, you're probably looking at uh, just a little bit above 61 dentists per 100,000. After about 2025, that number is projected to, to increase um, and, and increase substantially through about the next 15 years. The, the ADA's HPI is projecting that by the year 2024, the number of dentists per 100,000 in the population will increase from 61 to 67. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot just in terms of like raw numbers, but if you think about it, another six full dentists per 100,000 is a good bit. And we know that more than half the population doesn't see a dentist on an annual basis. So you start kind of wrapping your head around this and you're saying, okay, we've got more new dental schools that have come online um, and, and are coming online. I mean, the, the other day I saw a press release um, that uh, Rick Workman and his wife donated like $25 million or something to High Point University here in uh, North Carolina in Winston-Salem, uh, the Winston-Salem area that uh, is going to be for a new dental school. We just had East Carolina University Dental School open up probably about 10 to 15 years ago, maybe. Um, and, you know, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is a preeminent dental school. So for the state of North Carolina, we're going to have three full-fledged dental schools in pretty short order. Um, that may not be the case for every state in the union. It probably isn't. But we've added a lot of dental schools. We're adding a lot of dentists, and there are more of them coming into the workforce, and the ADA's numbers substantiate that. The second thing is when you think about those um, th those newly minted graduates moving into the workforce, the um, American Dental Education Association, ADEA, tracks a lot of um, the dynamics around the, the um, dentist student population. And this is a number that uh, stopped me cold recently on one of their most recent uh, webinars that I, I watched. And it is that about 82% of the dentists graduating from dental school are carrying some level of what they call educational debt. Educational debt is predominantly dental school, but it could be undergrad as well. All right. So educational debt for 82% of the, the kids graduating from dental school. And the average dollar amount of that debt burden for, for the 82% that are carrying educational debt is almost $305,000. Probably skews a little bit higher for private schools, probably skews a little bit lower for public schools, understandably, but the average number is now above $300,000. And that is for dental school, not specialty. Specialty adds a substantial amount more. So here we have um, a projected trend of the number of dentists that are going to be entering the workforce uh, really projected to increase over the next probably uh, 15 years uh, around that amount. And of those that are entering, they are carrying a significant amount of educational debt. It stands to reason, or it shouldn't be any surprise to everybody, that 
a lot of them are mind ready about joining a group practice or DSO. And again, from the ADEA's research, they asked the question to the, uh, the dental school seniors, you know, do you plan to join a group practice or DSO upon graduation? Five years ago, that number was only 12%. Double digits, you know, that's probably significant, um, but 12% five years ago. It's 30% as of last year. So in five years, when asked of the dental school seniors, do you plan to join a group practice or DSO upon graduation? In five years, the number has increased from 12% to 30%. That is a staggering trend. It's probably driven a good bit by the debt burden that I mentioned before uh, and probably driven by the fact that group practices and DSOs are hiring consistently. That being said, the profession for the longest point felt like, you know, people didn't want to work for group practices or DSOs. Um, and I think that was probably justified if we rewind the tape 20 years, but in, in today's working world and in the way that groups are, are constituted, be they doctor-owned, doctor-led groups, or enterprise-level private equity-backed DSOs, they are much more uh, provider-friendly. Um, and and they, they take that role very, very seriously. And I think what they're communicating to the people in dental school is resonating. If you've got almost a third of the graduating class saying, yeah, you know, I plan to join a, a group or DSO upon graduation. I mean, three out of every 10, 30%, that's a large number. So you're, you're dealing with um, younger, soon-to-be professionals who are very mind-ready about joining your group or, or any other group for that matter. And the, the last thing I'll say on trends to kind of put a bookend on this is that when we look at some of the ADA's research around the profession and, and specifically practice ownership, it, it's, it's sort of two tails of the same tape, right? You can probably draw a conclusion in your mind that those that are 50 to 60 plus years old um, predominantly own their own solo practice, and, and the numbers bear that out. And judging from some of the debt burden and trends that I was alluding to before, you can probably draw the conclusion that those who are younger and newer in the profession don't own their own solo practice. I would tell you that for a dentist who has been in the workforce for a couple of years, who's really started to um, you know, substantiate and further develop their clinical skills, they've got a lot of speed, they've got a lot of confidence uh, in terms of the dentistry they do they're probably entering the, the you know, prime earning years for them as they're in that 30 to 35-ish range and, and you know, beyond that. Well, when the ADA looks at uh, the percentage of those that are 30 to 34 years old, the, the dentists who, are, who should be entering the prime earning years um, of, of their career, Back in 2011, about 31, 30 to 31 percent of those 30 to 34 years old owned their own practice. This past year, when they ran the same study a year late, uh, 10 years later, that number had dropped from about 31 percent to almost 20 percent. 
So it tells you a lot about the going it alone and being a solo practice owner in today's world and whether or not the the younger segment of the profession are predisposed to want to do that. It doesn't mean that they don't want to be owners, but it probably means that they don't want to be a solo owner. And and that was a, a trend that uh, really stuck out to me as it related to those who you would think would be buying their first, having just bought their first practice and re- really entering the the prime earning years. So the trends are obvious, and that is that there are going to be uh, a phenomenal amount of uh, associates coming into the profession in the coming years. And if you are building a group practice, you got to get ready to hire them. We all know that you need them. You're, you're looking to expand your business. You're looking to expand the individual locations in terms of days and hours and, you know, increase utilization rates and all that kind of good stuff. We talked about all that on the podcast, but I'm here to tell you that there is a wave of opportunity coming. And now is the time to really start preparing yourself to take advantage of that. What you did up to this point in terms of recruiting associates is not going to to create success indefinitely. If you've been hiring based on need, meaning you got an opening or somebody quit or you, you had to fire somebody and then you start the recruiting process, you're on the back foot at that point. If you're going to build a growing group, recruiting is a 24-7 endeavor. It is not something that you stop and start. It is absolutely something that when you think through your um, your top priorities as a business owner and a business leader, recruiting has to be one of the top three always. It should never change. It should be a constant process. You should, ha- you should always have more potential candidates or people you're networking with um, even before you have openings. And if they're happily employed somewhere else, that's okay. You may not have a space for them right now, but it's important to keep in touch. Things change. You never know when somebody might not be ready now, but they might be ready a month from now or six months from now. It, it, it could be that they're in with a, a senior dentist and there's been some verbal agreement that the young associate is going to have the opportunity to buy out the senior dentist and lo and behold, it doesn't materialize or the timetable gets pushed off or the price changes. There are tons of things that happen, right? And I think you owe it to yourself not just to recruit when you have a need, but to get in the the mentality and the discipline of recruiting constantly. There is a cycle to recruiting. And and by that, I mean, you know, when uh, people are graduating from dental school or coming out of residency, um, this is, specialists know this by almost to a T, all the specialty clients um, that we work with when we talk about uh, recruiting uh, young associates to enter an oral surgery practice or a pediatric practice or something like that. They, they all know the specific dates that they're ready to enter the workforce. General dentistry has a little bit more transition built into it for people coming out of failed associateships, as well as people coming out of uh, dental school itself and residency. But I, I would say even 
in that context, um, you have to you have to understand the recruiting cycles, and and it's not something you should be stopping and starting. This is something that I learned early on in my professional career uh, when I ran um, a, a, an enterprise, a, a large group, or uh, excuse me, a, a large business for Patterson in the New York, New Jersey market. There were like 80, 80 to 85 people in that branch. Half of them were sales reps. And I was I felt like I was always recruiting new territory sales reps on about a, a four to six month cycle because I'd I'd go through a recruiting process, I'd hire an onboard, train and develop, start to release them out into the territories, and then start you know the the secondary recruiting cycle immediately after that it it, it never stopped and i think if you're going to build a group you have to have that same mentality that this is going to be an evergreen um scenario that you're always going to go back to so understand that the trends are in your favor um also understand that these young uh, potential associates are, are mind ready to join a group. You're not, you don't have anything to overcome when it, when it, uh, when we speak to that. And there's going to be a wave of them entering the workforce. Associate turnover is the number one problem of every group practice in DSO. You've heard me say that before. It doesn't matter if you're two or three locations or 1500 locations, it's the same for everybody. So, you know, commit to it, make sure it's one of your top three priorities and don't have it be a stop start scenario. You, you, it sh you should be doing it constantly. So let's talk about what a solution looks like and, and how to think about this from a broad brush overview standpoint. So if we're going to solve the associate problem, it's not, you know, solving it when the need arises, like I mentioned before. It's a constant process. The process and the solution really does have three components to it. One is recruiting that I've been banging on. The second is onboarding. And the third is development. So when we talk about recruiting, if your idea of recruiting is that um, you had somebody quit on you, so you need to to find somebody to to plug the hole, and you're gonna uh, you're gonna meet with them over coffee or something. Maybe have them into the office once, uh, present a, a an employment contract and a job offer letter to them. I, that's not gonna get it done. I mean, that may have gotten it done in the past, but the people you need to understand from a recruiting standpoint, you need to understand who you're competing with. You are not competing with the senior dentist who has uh, a solo location. Um, and is just looking for an associate to buy him or her out at some point in the next five to 10 years. That's not your competition. That's the person who may recruit with a job offer letter and an, an employment contract. The people you are competing against are enterprise level DSOs that have HR departments that are staffed by professionals. All they do every day, every hour of every day is recruit. They are professional recruiters. They know how scripted calls go. They understand what they're trying to solve for in terms of the opportunity from the associate's perspective. They have recruiting decks and a lot of marketing information and ways to stay in contact with associates from multiple touch points and value-added stuff. We'll talk about all that downstream. But these are professional organizations that project a professional image. They want to create in the mindset of the, the prospective associate, 
a desire to want to join that business. And these are the people you're competing against. If you're going to play on a larger group level, you're going to compete against the professionals that run the HR department and are in all the dental schools every day from all the enterprise level DSOs. That is your competition, not the person that has a solo location on the corner that's looking to transition out in the next five to 10 years. So you need to raise your game. You need to think through this and you need to play the game at a much more professional level. The second piece in a comprehensive solution um, uh, beyond recruiting is onboarding. I know it's probably been a while for you since you were um, since you bought you know your first practice or you came into the working world and you probably don't really remember what it was like early on to be a new dentist in a new business. Um, it's anxiety filled. I mean, if you think about people coming out of dental school or residency, they're used to structure, right? I mean, this they're still in the world of academia by and large, um, and. All of that has a, a structure, a formula, a system, a process, everything like that to it. And here they are looking to join your business and they're wondering to themselves, am I going to fit in? I, I, you know, is this going to be as good as what I think it's going to be? I'm excited about this. I'm really nervous about it. It's an anxious moment for them. And, and I can tell you when I first came into the working world, especially with Patterson, I, I transitioned three branches over that 15-year career. And even though I was leading the branches, I wondered the same things about myself. And I was the guy with you know, the name on the door, so to speak. I was the one that everybody rolled up to, and I was accountable for results. I was the, the commander of the ship. And I was still anxious about my first couple of weeks in a new branch and, and, you know, who the people were going to be and, and how I would bond with them and what I was really going to encounter in that branch. Once I started to, to roll up my sleeves and get to work, the associates who are joining your team have every ounce of anxiety that I just mentioned. And, and you need to acknowledge that. And an onboarding program is something that probably takes between eight and 12 weeks when all is said and done, um, it is the initial week that they start working for you. How is it laid out? What do they do from morning huddles to treatment philosophies and chart audits um, to doctor meetings, to team meetings, to case presentation uh, philosophies, all, all of that kind of stuff that makes your organization um, you know, effective from a clinical standpoint, you want them to experience that without having to be on the firing lines with it. And I think an on, a comprehensive onboarding plan lays out what is going to happen on the first day, the second day, through the fifth day in the first week, um, the subsequent weeks, how we revisit things, what we're looking for, what we're talking through, bringing them up to speed gradually, but showing them and communicating to them when you are recruiting them, that this is what your first couple of weeks on the job is going to look like. This is what your first two to three months are going to look like. This is what you should expect when you come to work with us. This is what we expect of you. It takes away a lot of the uncertainty. If you can document that, if you can lay it out in front of them, if you can walk and talk through it with them, they start to see themselves in it. 
And they start to embrace it and say, okay, I get it. I can do that. That's what it's going to be like. I can see myself in this environment and I want to be a part of it. So recruiting is the first piece, projecting a great image and, and getting somebody excited about possibly joining your business. Onboarding is a confidence-inspiring and foundational piece of that associate's first couple of weeks, first couple of months, depending on how comprehensive you want to be, uh, of uh, being on the job. It takes away some of that initial anxiety, and they start to, to solve for themselves around the question of, am I going to fit in? And that's what you want to create there. You want to create some structure. You want to create some expectations, um, and you want to reinforce what it is that you do really well um, and, and in an onboarding document that uh, that should should go far to allaying those concerns um, from the prospective applicant and the new employee for sure. Yeah. The third piece to this beyond recruiting and onboarding is development. And this is critical. Um, look, uh, you know, dentists, uh, the, the people who go to dental school, I still believe, are, are entrepreneurially minded. Um, I believe that they're uh, incredibly smart from an academic standpoint. You don't get dental school is incredibly uh, competitive to get into, and you don't get in if you're not bright. Okay, so these kids, these people, are smart and they're entrepreneurially minded, and they they come out of dental school knowing that their clinical skills are the bare minimum to pass the boards. We are, the, the people you want to recruit are the people who want to get better. They want to be a master at their craft. They want to um, be able to do more complicated dentistry. Along with that, they're going to make more money, right? So you want to have a clinical development program and you want to have it laid out where you can communicate it to a prospective uh, associate to say, look, here's what our business is all about. You know, this is, these are our core values. These, this is our mission. This is what we believe in. That's the recruiting piece. Here's what your first, you know, six to eight to 12 weeks on the job is going to look like. That's the onboarding plan. But beyond that, here's our two to three year plan for you. Here is what we expect you to come on board and learn from a clinical mastery standpoint. We are going to invest in you the following amount of dollars in each of those first two to three years. Maybe at some point, we're going to expect you to invest in yourself some amount of dollars to reach a level of clinical proficiency in these areas. With that, you're going to have more confidence. You're going to be able to do more complicated dentistry. You're going to be a better overall dentist than what you would be on your own. We have the structure. We have the framework. This is what our associates do. And this is what the outcome is and what you should expect when you join our team. And with that, you, you tap into the mindset of somebody that says, oh, I'm going to join this team. They're going to coach and develop me. I'm going to be better because of them. And I'm going to reach a level of success faster through mentorship, through clinical development, through a support network, and through a dental clinical team that is going to support their overall clinical initiatives and help them be more successful at what their, their God-given craft is. And if you can do that, 
it creates a tremendous amount of confidence in the applicant that they see themselves being successful with you. And, and if you can achieve all of that, it is a much more comprehensive approach to solving the associate problem. It's not just a compensation rate, an employment contract, and an offer letter. If that's your idea of competing and trying to land associates, um, good luck. I mean, that's not that's not the way we talk about it with our clients in our consulting program. It's not the way we talk about it when we work with people um, in a in a partnership pathways associate equity program. Your comprehensive solution, if you are going to um, play the game at a higher level, is that you have to have recruiting, onboarding, and development solved and solved congruently so that they all play off of one another. If you're going to solve the problem, you have to address all three of those in my mind. Um, and if you can do that, it makes it easier uh, to think about the recruiting process as being one of those top three priorities with a constant focus, like I mentioned before. So hopefully this is uh, starting to make a little bit of sense and, and really get you to think about things at a broader level. I know this is some high level stuff. It's not as granular as we normally go, but you, you got you, you to gotta see how the entire plan fits together before you can start tackling the individual components of it. And like I say, the individual components we're going to talk about on subsequent podcasts, and I'll, I'll have more uh, details for you um, around the way. Suffice to say, uh, if you do have questions about any of the things that I, I've alluded to or or um, hit at a high level, feel free to direct them uh, to me. You can email me directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So thanks again, everybody, for uh, for joining me on this show today. This is, like I say, going to be the first of several on solving the associate uh, problem or dilemma that seems to plague every group practice. And hopefully we got the boat off the dock today. Be more, uh, hopefully, good information to come. Along the same lines, uh, one of uh, the new employees we've had to join our team is a, a young guy named Mark Flock, who comes to us from the world of healthcare banking, most recently with PNC Financial. And uh, Mark is going to be a, another great addition to our team. He's going to be client facing, and his role is um, uh, an executive and partnership consultant. So a lot of the things like growth strategy we talk about from a consulting standpoint, but a lot of the topics that I hit on today as it relates to um, associates and, and, you know, really solving that, that problem for growing group practices, Mark's going to be waist deep in that very, very quickly. And we're going to talk about um, our associate equity models, profits, interest, restricted stock, and pathways to partnership, and all that kind of good stuff coming up. But that's that's going to be Mark's focus for us. Uh, he has seen, I have no idea how many uh, partnerships he's seen through his years of, of lending, um, but he understands a lot around equity, buy-in structures, loan structures, debt covenants, and things like that. And as you all well know, um, we are we have a a real um, affinity for the way that banks make decisions, and we understand that for our target client, you're all 
entrepreneurial dentists uh, that are building group practices and you're using bank funds to grow. So if the bank doesn't lend you any more money, it doesn't really matter what your growth strategy is. And Mark is yet another great addition from that world and has um, you know, a lot of experience with that. So he, I think he's going to be great for us. He's been on board for uh, about two months now, and you'll get to to meet him uh, in the marketplace in the not too distant future, and see him at a, a number of events and things like that. So, I'm um, I'm thrilled. Uh, we're all thrilled about having Mark Flock uh, joining the team, and and look forward to uh, him playing a, a greater role as as we move forward. Well, I had some fun today starting out the associate problem series, and I hope that y'all got um, a lot out of it. Uh, it is the first of what's going to be several episodes. Feel free to drop me a, a line directly, like I mentioned before, if you've got questions or if there are topics you want us to cover around this greater topic, I'd be happy to uh, happy to do that. If you want to learn more about us, you can do so off of our website at www.polarishealthcarepartners.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, we really appreciate the great feedback we get. I feel like probably... 80% of the people I'm on the phone with reference the podcast as the way they heard about us. So hopefully we're doing something right and the content is uh, uh, is landing well. If you do enjoy what you're hearing, please do leave us a rating. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and all the other media outlets. All of your ratings and your comments really do um, help us as it relates to promoting the podcast and having it reach a greater level of audience. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.